you want to get out your message outline. Have that out. It's good to see so many people up here in the front section. We sent out an email this week asking folks to move down and move in. And uh, a lot of our regulars to come down to the front half. And if you're in the back half, to kind of leave the aisle seats open for folks who come in late. And, and uh, visitors who come in, make it easy for guests to find a seat. And that's a good thing, and appreciate you doing that. We are at the end of Matthew chapter 8, so we race through the book of Matthew. The, uh, this is only the 25th sermon, so, in Matthew chapter 8. We've come to one of those stories that everybody knows about, but nobody gets. And uh, everybody's heard, but nobody's quite sure what's really going on here. And uh, is this just about Jesus doing more cool stuff, or is there a point? And so, that's what we're going to look at today. So, Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 28, through the end of the chapter. Please listen carefully, as this is the Word of God. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people you brought us again to this amazing gospel to learn about your son, Jesus. And we know that this word is not recorded simply to be interesting, or even just to give us a, an accurate account of the miracles of our Lord, although it does that. And we praise you for that. But this word is written for our instruction, for our counsel, for our admonition. So teach us the spiritual truths that are in it. And by your spirit, apply them to our hearts. And open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. As always, for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, some of you know, I was raised in the Episcopal Church. Once upon a time, a fine church of sound doctrine and insightful preaching. Once upon a time but not apparently at this time. Just recently, the presiding bishop of the Episcopal Church, the Most Reverend Catherine Jeffert Shiori, has denounced the Apostle Paul as mean-spirited and bigoted for having released the slave girl from demonic bondage. In her sermon delivered at 
All Saints Church in Curacao in the Diocese of Venezuela, the bishop decided to preach from Acts 16, which contains this account of the Apostle Paul casting out a demon from a slave girl. The first few verses of that passage read as follows. As we, referring to Paul and Silas, were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very hour. Now the presiding bishop opened her remarks with an observation on this Dutch slave past for this particular place in Curacao. And she said, the history of this place tells some tragic stories about the inability of some to see the beauty in other skin colors or the treasures of cultures they don't value. And to illustrate her point, she turned to this passage in the book of Acts. She said, there are some remarkable examples of blindness in the reading this morning, and slavery is wrapped up in it. Paul is annoyed at the slave girl who pursues him telling the world that he and his companions are slaves of God. She is quite right. She's telling the same truth that Paul and others claim for themselves. So far, so good. If she had only stopped there. But alas, she didn't. She went on to say, but Paul is annoyed, perhaps for being put in his place. And he responds by, quote, depriving her of her gift of spiritual awareness. Paul can't abide something he won't see as beautiful or holy, and so he tries to destroy it. It gets him thrown in prison. It's pretty much where he's put himself by his own refusal to recognize that she too shares in God's nature just as much as he does, maybe more so. Now the New Testament passage goes on to say that Paul and Simon Silas are imprisoned by the girl's owners because after freeing her of this demonic uh, possession, Paul has deprived them of their ability to make money off of her. But the presiding bishop noticed that once they're in jail, an earthquake opens the doors, sets them free, and now Paul discerns the presence of God. The jailer does, and he thinks his end at his hand is at hand. However, Paul now repents of his mistake in casting out the spirit of divination, even though this so-called repentance appears nowhere in the text. She goes on, this time Paul remembers who he is and all his neighbors are reflections of God. He reaches out to his frightened captor and he acts with compassion rather than annoyance. And as a result, the company of Jesus' friends expands to include a new household. It makes me wonder what would have happened to the slave girl if Paul had seen the Spirit of God in her. Now, As a lot of you know, I also teach preaching at Reformed Theological Seminary. And what can only be considered one of the worst sermons ever, with a sensationally poor interpretation, incredibly poor understanding, and pitiful, poor application of the passage, forcing it to mean the exact opposite of what it actually says. Bishop Jeffrey Shiori concludes by stating that we are not justified by our faith, but by our respect for diversity and condemning those who do not share her views as enemies of the Holy Spirit. 
And as I thought of this, this week, this actually happened uh, uh, last Sunday, was that particular sermon. And I'm reminded of 2 Timothy 4, where uh, Paul, who apparently doesn't know what he's talking about, uh, writes, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Now, I've spent several days thinking about this sad turn of events. And in so doing, I keep coming back to the same question over and over again, which is, what would she do with Jesus? After all, here in Matthew 8, our passage for this morning, it seems that he too is casting out demons. Perhaps he didn't see the Spirit of God in them. Maybe he didn't recognize the gift of spiritual awareness they had. After all, they certainly recognized him. Poor Jesus. If he'd only had Bishop Jeffrey Shiori around to enlighten him, what can you do? Well, the Bible has some very hard warnings for false teachers and false prophets and people who don't teach the Bible correctly. One of those comes to us from the prophet Isaiah, who warns us in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who call good evil and evil good. And to hear that sentence is to realize that the Bible presupposes that some things are good and other things are evil. Some actions are good and other actions are evil. Some words are good and other words are evil. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Why are people willing to accept evil. We have to understand this passage is more than just another healing miracle. It is much broader in scope than that. It is a visual demonstration of Jesus' power over evil, of Jesus' power over Satan and demons, and of Jesus' power over all things that oppose his kingdom. <coughs> We're going to start by looking at the context. To understand the passage, you have to understand the context. And in this case, we have to understand the context of evil. The context of evil. We're looking at events now in the life of uh, Christ. We're trying to figure out, you know, who Jesus really is. What did he really say and do? What's he like? And learn more about Jesus. And the real Jesus believed in demons. The real Jesus believed in the devil. In Matthew 4, which we went to a few months ago, there's a verse there that really helped me understand this. It was right before the, we got to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, most of us, you know, most people in our country uh, read passages about Jesus casting out demons, and they say, well, you know, the gospel writers, apparently even Jesus himself, were, were men of their time. They didn't know what we know now. You know, we know there's viruses that are the basis of disease. You know, and they didn't understand the whole uh, idea of mental illness. And they just didn't understand those things, so they attributed them to demons and devils, and it's a pretty scientific worldview. 
But when you get to Matthew 4, the very end of Matthew chapter 4, you see something that just sort of explodes, that whole idea. In the end of Matthew 4, it says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. It says demon-possessed people, paralyzed people, and literally, Matthew says, if you look up the Greek word, it literally says, those touched by the moon. It's a Greek word that has to do with madness. And here is translated as epileptics. We see that sometimes in the scriptures, Jesus heals uh, epilepsy by simply healing the person. And sometimes he heals epilepsy by casting out a demon, which means sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's demonic. And the point is both the gospel writers and Jesus himself understood that there's paralysis and madness and disease that has a demonic cause, and then there's a kind that doesn't have a demonic cause. It could be physical or mental. In other words, Jesus doesn't believe in demon possession out of ignorance, but out of conviction. And if you screen that out, you won't understand who the real Jesus is. And if you screen that out, you're going to miss very important, very profound insights that this passage gives for how to live your life. This passage teaches us several things about evil. Now, one of the things about preaching through books of the Bible and just preaching through the text and not skipping anything is you get those passages you probably wouldn't pick if you were just picking passages. You know, I didn't wake up Monday morning and think, I get to preach about evil this week. How cool is that? Um, and yet that's the passage that comes up. And I'm going to try to show you that it's actually a very practical passage. And specifically, the first lesson that we have about evil in this world is that it cannot be understood simply in human terms and can't be dealt with simply through human resources. The Bible teaches that the power and complexity of evil is such if you try to understand it simply in human and natural terms, if you try to deal with it simply in human and natural terms, you will be defeated. Everyone knows if you underestimate an enemy you'll be defeated. That's what this is teaching us. They're saying there's more to evil than the human. There's more to evil than the natural. The Bible teaches that there's evil in us and outside of us and above us. And it's, there's both natural and supernatural evil. And it teaches us that evil has a transcendent dimension. And if you don't admit that and don't see that, then you run into tremendous problems. Look here at verse 28. We're told... The men are coming out of the tombs. They're experiencing a living death. They live in the first century equivalent of a cemetery, tombs carved into the hill. And we read both uh, Matthew and Mark keep saying, no one, no one could bind him. No one could help him. No one could restrain him. No one was strong enough. No one could pass that way. That's the first lesson. Let's develop this a little bit because I think it's very practical. At the corporate level and at the individual level, we have a tendency, particularly those of us who live in the West, to radically underestimate evil. We want to believe it's strictly a human phenomenon, and as a result, we're continually being defeated. 
If you don't believe me, pick up the paper virtually any day. You can pick up the Washington Post, and I guarantee you there's at least five stories about something evil happening in the world. And for the last 150 years, the intelligent people of the West have said that all evil, whether we're talking about selfish or violence on an individual level, we're talking about war or crime or poverty or racism on a corporate level, it can all be reduced, analyzed, understood, and dealt with because it just has human roots. And if you get rid of the transcendent, if you get rid of God and the devil, and you, then you just have to say, well, why do we do these things to each other? And some people would take more of a psychological approach. They would say the reason there's violence and selfishness in people is we have psychological problems. We weren't loved properly. We have inadequate family backgrounds and so on and so forth. And so we deal with evil through counseling. Some people take more of a sociological view. They say racism and poverty are the result of an unjust social system. It can be dealt with through education and social policy and programs. And others would say, no, these problems are physiological. They're the results of evolutionary biology and natural selection, survival of the fittest. And it's all about chemicals. And it's chemistry that makes us aggressive. It's chemistry that causes this sort of thing, so we deal with it through drugs. Now, there's nothing wrong with counseling or education or medicine unless you're trying to use them to control evil. When I said the last 150 years we've been looking at evil as strictly human, something we can manage, control, analyze, prescribe, and deal with, well, everybody's sort of getting to the point realizing that that time is ending. It, it's not working. Quite frankly, we're getting trounced by evil. And so people are starting to give up some of the optimistic ideas. I mean, we've been working at the counseling, and we've been working at education and working at social progress and working at the medicine and working at all these things and things are not getting better. And I'm trying to say if you decide that we can deal with evil because it's just us and only us, it's just human and natural, it's just psychological or sociological or physiological, you're going to be defeated. No one could help these men. No one was strong enough. No one. And if you say, I can deal with the problems in my life if I just suck it up and do what I know I'm capable of doing, and if I go to little classes where you tell people in elementary school you can be anything you want to be, and see the slogan say we all just pull together, it will be better. And this passage says no. It says you need intervention. You need a Savior. Now look at your own lives. You don't have to be demon-possessed to understand this. Look at yourselves. For some of you, you know you're out of control. You've got habits you can't fix. You're driven in ways you don't know what to do with. There's things that scare you. And we make fun of commitment phobia, but some of you just can't do it. And you've gone to therapy. And therapy very often shows you the psychological way in which all this has come about. And then you turn to the therapist and say, great, I understand. What do I do about it? And most reputable therapists who do a great job at getting you to figure out what the problem is and what's caused this, but when you say, what, what do I do now? 
most reputable therapists are going to say, what do you think? On and on and on. Because therapy can show you how you got into this condition. But it can't get you out. It doesn't get you out. And most of you know that. So no one can break the chains, the power of evil, if you think of it in merely human terms. And you deal with it with merely human resources. Now, I'm not opposed to therapy. Sometimes the problem is you don't know how you got here and you don't know what's caused this. And you've got to start there. So don't hear me in saying that that's a bad thing. It's not. But it's not going to solve the problem of evil. And if you think it is, you'll be defeated. And so corporately, we're defeated, and individually, we're defeated. And I'm just trying to show you the power and complexity of evil. It's evil inside, it's evil outside, it's evil above. And you don't want to be naive. That's a, that's a harsh criticism in Northern Virginia, being naive. We don't mind being wrong as long as we're not naive. And we don't even mind being messed up as long as we're not naive. And you think you're deep and complicated. The reality is you're way more deep and complicated than you know. Because in our society, in our culture, the world in which we live, the pattern of evil is pervasive. In our society, in our community, in our lives. And even if you don't believe that, I can assure you that Jesus does. And it's a strange passage. This is the first passage in the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus' encounter with the demon-possessed is described. It's been mentioned earlier that he's healed those who are demon-possessed. But now we see an incident actually depicted for us. And there's some great spiritual truths for us in this passage. I want to point you to three of them. First one comes in verse 28 and 29. We learn the power of possession. The power of possession. It says there, when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Well, first of all, Matthew reminds us, even the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. So Matthew brings home to us, with particular force, this truth, that Jesus is the very Son of God. This incident occurs when he's crossed the Sea of Galilee, and he goes to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. It's a region predominantly populated by Gentiles, as shown by the presence of a herd of pigs, not an animal particularly loved by the Jewish people. And so Jesus comes to this region of the Gentiles, preaching the gospel, performing deeds of power. As he comes ashore, he meets these two demoniacs, terrifying people possessed by demons. Now, demon possession by itself is a mysterious subject. There's lots written on it, and virtually none of it agrees with each other. Probably the best thing I read, one of the founding fathers of the PCA said, I don't know much about demon possession, but I read a lot of books by people who say that they know much about demon possession, and they don't know much about demon possession either. The word demons often rendered devil in the King James Version. Demons are spoken of as spiritual beings, hostile to God as having certain power over men. They recognize our Lord as the Son of God, 
but they belong to that number of angels who fell from heaven. They're unclean spirits. They're of the devil. They're the principalities and powers that Paul tells us to wrestle against. A demoniac is one possessed of a demon. And in the days of our Lord, evil spirits were mysteriously allowed by God to exercise influence over men. Sometimes that's seen physically, people not able to speak or, or blind, or maybe they would have epileptic seizures. Sometimes diseases like epilepsy have nothing to do with demon possession. The Bible distinguishes between physical illness and mental illness and demon possession, and there are differences. But in this story, we're clearly told these men are afflicted by demon possession. But interestingly, these men approach Jesus. He doesn't get out of the boat and, boat and run to them. They run to him. And by the way, Mark and Luke only tell us about one of these uh, guys. It doesn't mean there's a contradiction. Gospel writers often focus on a particular detail to bring home a particular truth. And so they emphasize different aspects of the same account. So it would be better to view these accounts as complementary. But when these demon-possessed men approach Jesus, the first thing we see is they acknowledge him as the Son of God, even though they reject him. They don't acknowledge him as the leader, uh, but they do acknowledge him as the Son of God. And there's something very interesting that I discovered about Matthew's use of the term Son of God. The first time the term Son of God is recorded in Matthew, it comes from the lips of Satan. It comes in the temptation back in Matthew uh, uh, four, where Satan tempts Christ using the term Son of God. Now Matthew doesn't record that to cast doubt on whether Jesus is the Son of God, but to point out that even Satan knows that Jesus is the Son of God. And there's many enlightened people today who would say believing that is a fairy tale, believing Jesus is the Son of God. But in the Bible, only humans are stupid enough to deny that Jesus is the Son of God. In the Bible, the demons acknowledge that Jesus is the divine Son of God. So this is the second time the phrase is used. It's used by demons. Then the third time it's used, we go all the way to Matthew 26 in the interrogation of Jesus by the high priest. He says, tell me if you're the Son of God. And again, an opponent of Christ, this time the high priest, is asking if Jesus is the Son of God. Then the next time, Matthew 27 it's used when the thieves are mocking Christ. Three verses later, it's used when the priests and scribes and elders are mocking Christ. And the last time, it's when Jesus is on the cross and the Roman centurion, who's a Gentile, looks up and says, surely this man is the Son of God. Matthew, by reminding us that even the demons and the enemies and the Gentiles acknowledge Christ as the Son of God, is, is asking us, do you see who this man is? This isn't some great moral teacher. It's not an exalted prophet. This is somebody on an entirely different plane than anything you've known before. Jesus is the Son of God. And yet these demons say, what do you have to do with us? They're acknowledging, even though they know he's the Son of God, he's not their Savior. He's not their leader. They do recognize that ultimately he will be their judge. They say, have you come here to torment us before the time? I think it's interesting the demons seem to know about both the first and second coming of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ. Even the disciples stumbled with that. And yet the demons know, wait a minute, 
We're not supposed to be thrown into the abyss with Satan and experience eternal torment till the second coming. Have you come here before the time? They see a lot, they know a lot, but they don't follow Christ. There's a lot of truths we can learn from this exchange. For one, it's an important testimony to the deity of Christ. Even the demons acknowledge him to be the Son of God. But it's also a really serious and solemn reminder. It's possible to acknowledge Christ with your lips and not acknowledge him with your heart. It's possible to profess Christ without possessing him in your heart. It's possible to claim to follow Christ with your lips but not be a follower of Christ with your life. And we do well to reflect on that truth when we realize who Jesus is. He is the very Son of God. That's the first great spiritual truth we get out of here. The next one comes, verses 30, 32. We see the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus. It says, Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast this out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. They came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Second thing we learn in this passage, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is sovereign even over demons. Jesus Christ is sovereign even over the forces of evil. When he walks through this world as our prophet, priest, and king, bearing our infirmities, sorrows, suffering on our behalf, he is sovereign over the forces of evil. The Lord Jesus has wandered into this region where there's all these Gentiles who are explicitly told there's a herd of pigs. And of course, pigs are unclean animals for Jews. You're not allowed to touch that, which is unclean. You're certainly not allowed to eat that, which is unclean. And he confronts these two demoniacs. And before Jesus even begins to speak to them, the demons speak to him. They Basically, they're asking him to cut a deal, to diminish his plans for them. Jesus' power and authority is seen even in the requests of the demons. Even the demons know they've got to ask first. They have to make a request of Christ. So his sovereignty is stressed in several ways. Look at the first half of verse 31. It's clear the demons acknowledge that Christ has the power to cast them out of these two men. And they have no strategy to resist being cast out. They only attempt to, to sort of mitigate where he's going to send them once he does cast them out. Because he's sovereign. And then the second half of that verse, verse 31, notice they request permission. Permission to possess this herd of pigs nearby. And even their plans, their evil desires have to be submitted to Christ. And then finally notice, the demons obey Jesus. I find that interesting. And in contrast to Matthew and Mark's, uh, or Matthew, excuse me, in contrast to Mark and Luke's account, and I get my gospel writers right here, Matthew only records Jesus saying one word. The others has a longer account, but here it's just one word. He just says, go. Showing the sheer sovereignty of our Lord. As Martin Luther would remind us, one little word shall fell them. Lord Jesus is sovereign over the forces of evil. Now, 
Big question here, why did they want to go destroy the herd of pigs? And that's a really good question, and I don't really have time to get into it this morning. Perhaps another sermon at another time. Very quickly, let me just say Jesus had good reasons for doing what he did. He can tell you just broad strokes. He rescues a human being from Satan's tyranny. He shows the pig's owners the value of a person. He sends the healed man back to his own people. And he uses this man to introduce the gospel to this Gentile land. And he gives testimony of his own power to his own disciples. That he's sovereign over the forces of evil. How important would that be for his disciples to remember as in their lives they face principalities and powers? Jesus, Son of God, Jesus is sovereign. And the third great truth we see, starting in verses 33 and 34, where we hear the plea of the people. The plea of the people, it says, The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they thanked him for freeing these men. That's not what it says. It says they begged him to leave their region. They seemed kind of hard-hearted there. They cared more about the herd of pigs than they did about these men. Human value surpasses material value, but they don't see it. They beg Jesus to leave, to run away, to just go and not come back. There's a lot of important things we can learn in this section of Matthew. It's a testimony to the sovereignty of God, a testimony to Christ's power over evil, And it reminds us that sometimes the devil's way of extinguishing goodness is God's way of advancing goodness. It reminds us that Christ is more powerful than all the forces arrayed against us. That's important to remember when the news comes to your door that a little boy has died or there's been a tragedy at the high school and some ill, mentally ill young man has killed his fellow students or... You hear the good friend has been in a car accident and there's paralysis. It's an important thing to remember that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is sovereign and he has power over evil when you face the horrible difficulties of living in a fallen world. you got to remember, God's not out of control. God will rule and overrule for your good. I referred to Martin Luther. It seems that Martin Luther understood this, a great reformer. We often claim Calvin in the Presbyterian Church, but Luther has all the best quotes. It's just the way it is. Got to give it up for the Lutherans. The, uh, but in that great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, Luther pens these truths. I'm just going to read them for you. We'll come back to him. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Luther knew his scriptures. 
That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. There's a reason why that's one of the great hymns of the faith. Because it contains great truths of the faith. Christ is more powerful than all the forces arrayed against us. Can't ever forget that. It's very tempting in this world, in this life, when you're confronted by evil on a daily basis, to believe that the forces of darkness are stronger than the forces of light. But don't believe that lie. One little word shall fell him. Christ is sovereign. I've been thinking about this incident all week, and uh, you know, Joanne and I recently saw uh, the film 42, a movie about Jackie Robinson. It's a story of shame and glory, of the hard face of institutional racism that plagued our country. The courageous choices by people like Branch Rickey and Jackie and Rachel Robinson to chart a different path for themselves, for baseball, for America. There's nothing cheap in the story. In this film shows us through the lives of Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey this change. The 1950s, racial, seg racial segregation is the law and the culture of the land. And Branch Rickey is a white man who runs the Brooklyn Dodgers. What they don't tell you in the movie is also a lay preacher in the Methodist Church. And decides to break down baseball's color barrier by signing Jackie Robinson, this talented African-American ball player. And he says, I'm going to bring a black ball player to white baseball. There's this great scene in the movie where Branch Rickey's played by Harrison Ford. He starts to challenge Jackie to see if he can handle the pressure. And then Jackie gets right in his face and says, you want a player who doesn't have the guts to fight back? And Ricky gets right back in his face and says, no, I want a player who's got the guts not to fight back. Like our Savior, you've got to have the guts to turn the other cheek. But no one knew how hard that would be. The language in the movie, the insults, the humiliation, the hatred, the taunting, it was all a little tough to take. And in one dramatic scene, Jackie, overwhelmed with frustration, leaves the field, walks into the tunnel, explodes in anger and tears, and just starts smashing his bat against the concrete uh, walls until there's nothing left but splinters and toothpicks. And Branch Rickey just walks up and cons him down, and he, he's leaning against the concrete wall, tears coming down his face. And he says, knowing that Branch Rickey's standing right behind him, he says, do you know what it's like? having someone do this to you? And Ricky says, no. You're the one living this sermon. I have this hat. It's a Brooklyn Dodgers hat. It was given to me many years ago, and it's got some signatures on it. 
by the then six living legends from the Brooklyn Dodgers. Carl Erskine, Roger Craig, Clem LeBlanc, LeBlanc uh, Duke Snyder, Don Zimmer, and Ralph Branca. The great Dodger legend, Duke Snyder, who signed it right there. He once observed about Jackie, the pressure was enormous, it was overwhelming, it was unbearable at times. I don't know how he held up. I never could have. Jackie had a core group of people who supported him, but for a long time he suffered alone. It took his teammates a little while to get up the courage to publicly stand with him. And when they did, it helped to break down those walls of hatred and anger. And there's another great and at the same time terrible, terrible scene where Jackie's coming to bat and the Phillies manager comes out and stands in front of his dugout and taunts Jackie with the most cruel and racist words, just dripping with hatred, riding Jackie to leave, to run away, to just go and not come back. And then very quietly, this tall, lanky pitcher, Ralph Bronca, comes out. He stands in front of his dugout. He says somewhat quietly, and everybody's looking at him because I'm not sure what's going on. He says, he's a Brooklyn Dodger. He stays. One man's yelling at him to go. Another man's telling him to stay. That's a choice often in life. It's a choice in this passage. The last thing we read is they begged him to leave. In Mark's account, Mark tells us, uh, when they came up, they saw the demon-possessed man sitting there clothed in his right mind, and they were afraid. They began to beg Jesus to depart from the region. And as he was getting in the boat, the man who had been possessed begged him that he might be with him. They said, go. The man said, stay. The people are yelling at Jesus to go. The healed man is begging him to stay. What are you telling him? What are you telling him? Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you for helping us to see your son. Help us also to see our sin. And then look at Jesus. We see him as you want us to see him doing battle with Satan and his kingdom on our behalf. And we know that in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against the king and his kingdom. And we know there's nothing in our lives he can't deal with. It doesn't matter how naked we are. It doesn't matter how uh, self-hating we are. It doesn't matter whether we're demoniacs or not. Jesus Christ, with just a word, is able to cleanse us and free us. Help us to know that and to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign 
forever and ever. Amen. From Mark and Luke. And Jesus said, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away proclaiming how much Jesus had done for him. God bless you. We'll see you at the picnic.